Zechariah chapter 7. In the fourth year of King Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month, which is Kislev. Now the people of Bethel had sent Sherazar and Regamelech and their men to entreat the favor of the Lord, saying to the priests of the house of the Lord of hosts and the prophets, Should I weep and abstain in the fifth month, as I have done for so many years? Then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, Say to all the people of the land and the priests, When you fasted and mourned in the fifth month and in the seventh for these seventy years, was it for me that you fasted? And when you eat and when you drink, do you not eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? Were not these the words that the Lord proclaimed by the former prophets when Jerusalem was inhabited and prosperous with her cities around her and the south and the lowland were inhabited? And the word of the Lord came to Zechariah saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. But they refused to pay attention and turned a stubborn shoulder and stopped their ears that they might not hear. They made their hearts diamond hard, lest they should hear the law and the words that the Lord of hosts had sent by his spirit through the former prophets. Therefore, great anger came from the Lord of hosts. As I called and they would not hear, so they called and I would not hear, said the Lord of hosts. And I scattered them with a whirlwind among all the nations that they had not known. Thus the land they left was desolate, so that no one went to and fro, and the pleasant land was made desolate. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Loren. Uh, boys and girls can head out to story keepers or to nursery. Don't rush. As the children are uh, heading out, let me lead us in prayer. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for uh, this book of Zechariah, uh, perhaps less familiar to many of us than other parts of the Bible, but uh, just as much your word to us, given to us for our encouragement, our correction, our direction. And so we pray as we look at uh, this particular part of it that it would be helpful this morning, that we would not only understand what's going on, but that we would see its relevance for our lives, its applicability for the week ahead. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Growing up, uh, one of the games I remember often playing with my friends was, What Time Is It, Mr. Wolf? From what I understand, the version in this country is usually under the name of What Time Is It, Mr. Fox, but I'm assuming the versions work the same way. Participants take the number of steps matching the time called out, five o'clock, take five steps, always alert to when Mr. Wolf might say dinner time and seek to catch someone standing nearby. As we grow older, the question of what time is it takes on slightly more significant meaning. For example, you wake up uh, one morning having forgotten to set your alarm the night before and realizing that it's later than you thought. You missed your early morning meeting and you worryingly mutter to yourself, oh, what time is it? 
Expand the question out to what day is it or what season is it? And the answer to those questions can dramatically affect your approach to the day. Paraphrase the writer of the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes, is it a time to plant or a time to uproot, a time to weep or a time to laugh, a time to mourn or a time to dance? All of our weighty decisions depend on what story uh, you think you're living in and what part of that story you find yourself at or what time is it in the story. To come to Zechariah 7, we're actually going to think about 7 and 8 today. We come to a what time is it sort of question. These chapters occupy a, a hinge in the book of Zechariah, occupying the space between uh, the visions that we've been looking at in chapters 1 to 6, and then the oracles that will take up the rest of the book from chapter 9 on. And as we'll see today, Zechariah has structured these two chapters in such a way that they, they clearly belong together, and it's this what time is it question that really holds them together. I'm going to word our sermon in a sentence in the form of a question today, and it's simply this. Is it a time for fasting or a time for feasting? And we're going to see how God answers that question through these two chapters as we look at the passage in three parts today. First of all, the temptation of an easy life. Secondly, God's dream city. And thirdly, the beauty of Emmanuel. So first, the, the temptation of an easy life. Uh, look again at verses 1 to 2 of chapter 7. In the fourth month of King Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month, which is Kislev, and the people of Bethel had sent Sharazar and Regamelech and their men to entreat the favor of the Lord, saying to the priests of the house of the Lord of hosts and the prophets. So this is the first date that we've been given uh, since chapter one. It indicates that we're two years on from the time of Zechariah's night visions in chapters one to six. King Darius of Persia is still on the throne, but while much is the same, there are some important developments. The fourth year of Darius's reign was highly significant. It's in, the, in the fourth year that uh, Darius had consolidated his hold over the Persian Empire from the Indus Valley in the east all the way to Egypt in the west up to what is now Turkey in the northwest. And in the process, the king had organized the entire empire into these 20 provinces or satrapies, giving to each a high degree of local authority, which allowed each of the provinces, including Judah, to resume ancient traditions as were permitted by the local authorities. And all of that had improved life for those living in Jerusalem. But more important than that, the fourth year of Darius's reign was significant because by then the rebuilding of the temple was almost complete. The fact that these visitors from Bethel had come to the priests of the house of the Lord of hosts is an indication that the temple was essentially functioning. There were still some odd jobs to be completed, some finishing touches around the trim and so on. But one of the ways that Darius had worked out how to ingratiate himself to the people in these provinces actually was by instituting the world's largest real estate bailout program of his day. Even though he didn't believe in any of the other gods besides the Persian god Ahura, Ahura Mazda, he authorized the rebuilding of all the various temples. And for the temples that had just been started, like the one in Jerusalem, 
he opened up the coffers of the Trans-Euphrates Revenue and at public expense, all paid by tax dollars, public tax dollars, wrote a blank check and said, whatever it costs, build it. And that essentially meant that the temple in Jerusalem could get rebuilt, which was good news for the people that the temple was, was almost completed. Now that's the background to this visit from these people from Bethel and their question to the priests at the temple. We pick it up again in verses two to three. Now the people of Bethel had sent Sharazar and Regamelech and their people to entreat the favor of the Lord, saying to the priests of the house of the Lord of hosts and the prophets, should I weep and abstain in the fifth month as I've done for so many years? Turns out, as we're then told in chapter eight, that the Israelites had instituted four fasts during the exile that they were still observing. One in the fourth month, one in the fifth, one in the seventh, one in the tenth. And all four of these fasts commemorated particular landmark events that had happened as part of the destruction of the temple and of Jerusalem. And here in verse three, just the fast of the fifth month is mentioned. It was in the fifth month that about 70 years earlier that the city itself had been destroyed as well as the temple. And so here are these visitors from Bethel coming to the priests with a question about this fast in the fifth month. And their question essentially is this, now that the temple's up and running, can we, can't we just drop one of these annoying fasts? We now have again what we've been hoping for and praying for and looking for. What time is it? Isn't it time to retire this fast that we've been doing for so many years? Now, before we get to God's response, it's worth noting that just with those last few words we've been doing for so many years, that, that while so much has changed for the better, much in Israel was still the same. That is, nothing really had essentially changed with regard to the hearts of the people. Apathy appears to be the order of the day. After the exile, the general issues, we've said before, seem to be a lack of enthusiasm and passion. All these fasts were just apparently becoming a bit of a drag. People were on the hunt for an easier life which is something that hasn't really changed over 2,500 years, and that's not always a bad thing. One benefit that many people, many of you, have found through the last two years is that working from home is possible, and indeed, in many ways, it makes for an easier life. No commute, other, other things are made easier, but with societal changes and benefits also come dangers. The constant search for an easier life can make us become much more self-absorbed and self-centered. We start to think in terms of just me and I deserve some me time and so on. We'll more easily give in to the temptation to watch a church service from our sofa, in our pajamas, with our breakfast, than actually just come here because it's easier. We can be drawn to the easier life just like these visitors uh, to Bethel can. The question these visitors were, were asking was really a simple yes-no question. Should I weep and abstain in the fifth month as I've done for so many years? Yes or no? God, however, doesn't give a straightforward yes or no answer here. Instead, he gives a rather lengthy response that takes up two whole chapters, chapter 7 and 8. And as was so often the tactic with Jesus in the Gospels, God begins his response to their question with a question, in fact, with three questions. Look at verses four to seven. 
And the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, say to all the people of the, of the land and the priests, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth month and in the seventh for these 70 years, was it for me that you fasted? And when you eat and when you drink, do you not eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? Were not these the words that the Lord proclaimed by the former prophets when Jerusalem was inhabited and prosperous with her cities around her and the south and the lowland were inhabited? Now, before we look at God's questions here, let me just say a word or two in general about fasting, because that's often one question that people have with a passage like this. One of the surprising things to me about the Bible's treatment of fasting is it never actually seems to be presented as a spiritual discipline that you're commanded to practice. Fasting's mentioned 56 times in the Bible. If you want to check it, you can, but take my word for it. It's generally approved of by God. However, what we often miss is that Fasting in the Bible is very frequently linked with mourning and with weeping and with lamenting. Fasting and mourning, those two words occurred together eight times in the Bible. Fasting and weeping, eight times. Fasting, mourning, and weeping, four times. In fact, in the book of Esther, chapter 4, we find fasting, mourning, weeping, and lamenting all together in the one verse. All of which I think suggests that just as there's no spiritual discipline of weeping, there's really no spiritual discipline of fasting. That you, you weep when you can't help it. And I think the same thing is intended with regard to fasting. You fast when you can't help it. And some of you have experienced this. Sometimes that's because of heart-wrenching bereavement or loss or national calamity or, or, or illness. Perhaps you've had the experience of of uh, when you've lost a close relative or a friend and after the funeral service, everyone's gathered together for a meal or something to eat. People keep telling you, you need to have something to eat. You need to eat something. But the thought of food at that moment is frankly repulsive to you. And so we fast in reaction to these, these, uh, these hardships, these bereavements. But in the Bible, fasting also comes as a consequence of our deep grieving over our sin. It comes as a result of when we feel bereft of God, this overwhelming sense of our need for God, such that your hunger and thirst for him is so strong that it replaces for a period of time your, your physical appetite for food. That your longing for God at those times is so powerful that you are moved to weep and to lament and to mourn and to fast. Well, the question here from the visitors in Bethel has to do with fasting in response to their question. God asks them three questions, and the first of, first of them has to do with the motivation for their fasting. When you fasted and mourned in the fifth month and in the seventh for these 70 years, was it for me that you fasted? In other words, were you doing this for me or were you doing it for yourself? 19th century uh, London preacher Charles Spurgeon once told the story of a farmer who loved the king. The farmer grew a huge carrot, and as a sign of devotion to the king, he gave it to him, and he said, my liege, this is the greatest thing I've ever grown or will ever grow. I'd like to give it to you as a token of my esteem. As he walked away, the king said, wait, 
What delight and joy you have given to me. I would like to give to you a double portion of your land. Your farm will double in size. And the man went home rejoicing. Well, a local nobleman heard about this. And he raised horses. And he thought, if the king will give that kind of land for a carrot, what kind of land will he give for a horse? So the nobleman comes and brings to the king his horse. He says to the, the king, my liege, this, this is the best horse I have ever reared. Please receive it as a token of my esteem. And the king looked at him and discerned his heart, and he said, you disgust me. The nobleman said, what? This is, this is a lot better than a carrot. And the king said, no, it isn't. The farmer gave me the carrot. You gave yourself the horse. One of the most searching questions we can ask ourselves is, am I doing this for God or am I doing it for myself? It's not not an easy question to answer. One of the ways I've found that helps me answer that question in my own life is through what the late uh, writer Dallas Willard called the discipline of secrecy. Let's say you've done something positive. It could be a large donation to a ministry or to a charity. It could be that you've set up Uh, a room for an event here at church or elsewhere. It could be that you've just this past week been helping people quietly behind the scenes, people in need. So here's the challenge. Can, Can you manage to keep that information to yourself? Or do you feel the compulsion to just kind of innocently drop it into the conversation at some later point so that others find out that you did it? It's actually harder to do than you think. In other words, were you doing this for yourself or were you doing it for God? For these visitors from Bethel, the implication of God's question to them was clear, that their fasting had really been more about themselves than God. They'd fasted initially out of grief due to the destruction of the temple, but now that the temple was operational again, they figured that fasting was just a waste of time. However, God wanted them to see that the destruction of the temple was really just a symptom of the deeper problem. The deeper problem, the real problem, was their sin and the the, the impact of that sin on their relationship with God. And that was unfinished business. That still needed to be dealt with, which still, therefore, warranted grieving, lamenting, fasting. Well, the Lord then follows up with two other questions. The second, expand the inquiry into their motivation of their hearts, not just when they're fasting, but when they're feasting. And then in his third question, God essentially says, haven't we been around this block before? Didn't my former prophets address this subject before I sent you into exile? The answer to that question was yes. For example, perhaps the most famous passage amongst the prophets, Isaiah 58. Prophet Isaiah quotes the people asking this question of God, why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? And here's God's response. Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is not this the fast that I choose, to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? The answer to God's rhetorical question here in Zechariah 7 is, yes, the former prophets have indeed addressed this, 
but apparently the people need to hear it again. And so Zechariah repeats Isaiah's message just with essentially different words. Verses 8 to 10, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Render true judgments or true justice. Show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. On uh, Wednesday at the Theology on Tap men's group, uh, we continued our discussion of Adam Ramsey's excellent uh, book, Truth on Fire. Some of you who picked that up as last month's book of the month have uh, told me you've been enjoying reading it. And the chapter we discussed this past uh, week was entitled, God is Just, the Experience of Prophetic Advocacy. And in the chapter, Ramsey highlights the significant number of times the Bible references the justice of God, that God is a God of justice, and how we, therefore, as God's people, makes sense, should be advocates of justice too. He actually quotes these verses from Zechariah 7 as evidence of that. One of the challenges I think we face with regard to this is, is that, like with some other terms that are, are found in the Bible, the word justice has been hijacked in a sense that parts of the wider society have, have taken it, and it's constantly become a bit of a loaded term for some of us, especially if, as in our prayer of confession today, the word social is put before it. We immediately become guarded when it's mentioned. That's not a good thing. In uh, the film Rattle and Hum, Bono of the band U2 introduces the song Helter Skelter with these words. He says, Charles Manson stole this song from the Beatles. We're stealing it back. Well, we need to steal back or better take up rightful ownership again of biblical words, biblical concepts like justice. Adam Ramsey in his chapter defines justice simply as restoring right to the places where wrong is triumphing. And there are a lot of those places still in our world. Both Zechariah and Isaiah were saying that if the Israelites' fasting really had been for God, it would have resulted in changed behavior, behavior that reflected God's own character and his own passionate commitment to justice. And specifically, Zechariah says, it would result in you showing kindness and mercy to one another and not oppressing, but being advocates for the widow and the fatherless, for the sojourner, i.e. the immigrant or the refugee, for the poor, and never devising evil against another in your heart. And I think part of the reason why God makes this connection between true fasting and justice is that when we're advocates for justice, we're committing ourselves to what one writer calls a life of inner pain. Being an advocate for justice requires us to grieve not only over our own sin, but also the sin of a broken world. It calls us to listen to other people's stories, to empathize with other people's stories, and not to just shut ourselves off from these realities. It calls on us to lament the greed and the malice and the violence and the deceit that mark our world and the abuse and the ignorance and the poverty and death that these vices breed. God reminds us here through Zechariah that one of the clearest signs that what we do is for God and not for ourselves is how committed we are to ways of justice. At the end of the chapter, he says that, that it was the people's refusal to listen to God on these matters 
their diamond hard hearts towards the word of God sent by the spirit that caused God to send them into exile. God forbid that our attitude to God's word and spirit on this matter or any matters would ever be described this way. May we not give in to the temptation of an easy life. Well, that brings us to chapter 8. I just asked Loren to read chapter 7. Here in this chapter, Zechariah is still answering the question of the visitors from Bethel about what time is it? Is it time to just forget about these fast days? Chapter 7 had ended with God's judgment on his people for refusing to listen to him. But in this chapter, we discover that the judgment is not to be the final word. The movement from chapter 7 to chapter 8 is going to be from scattering to regathering, from rebuke to promise, from fasting to feasting. And what Zechariah gives us in chapter 8 is essentially a a 10-point sermon in which he presents 10 oracles, each beginning with the words, thus says the Lord of hosts. You'll perhaps be relieved to know that we're not going to work through every one of the 10 points of his, his, his somewhat brief sermon. In summary, though, the 10 points are 10 points of very good news. God jealously loves his people. He's coming home to them. He's going to fix everything. He's going to replace covenant curses with covenant blessings. He's going to make them strong. He's going to transform them. He says there's a great party up ahead. He says there are many people who are going to join you at this party. And God assures them of his presence. But for our second and third points, which are going to be briefer than the first, I want us to look briefly at the beginning section of this chapter and the end. Near the beginning of the chapter, we see, here's our second point, God's dream city. Look at verses 1, chapter 8, 1 to 5. The word of the Lord of hosts uh, came saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Zion with great jealousy and I am jealous for her with great wrath. Thus says the Lord, I have returned to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem and Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. Thus says the Lord of hosts, old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem each with cane in hand because of great age, and the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in its streets. One of the challenges reading the Old Testament prophets is to know what time frame they're thinking about when they reference the fulfillment of God's promises. They tend to operate in three time zones simultaneously, now, later, and much later. And chapter 8 doesn't seem to be about the much later, unless you think we're going to have kind of gold-plated canes and walking sticks in heaven. I don't think we are. I think he's talking here about, Zachariah's talking about his now and his later, his later really being our now. He's talking about this life, not the next, albeit set in an idyllic palette of vibrant colors to push us towards something I think he wants us to see is attainable now. I want you to envision for a moment, you can close your eyes or keep them open, whichever you prefer. I want you to envision for a moment what comes to mind when I ask you to picture your dream city. Your dream city. I wonder what you see. Take a moment and think about what that is. For some of us, I'm guessing there are lots of parks there, great coffee houses, Art galleries, libraries, theaters, walkable spaces, a wide variety of great shops. 
Zechariah tells us that when God closes his eyes and imagines his dream city or town, it's full of old men and old women, full of boys and girls playing. Just think about the significance of that in Zechariah's day for a moment. When disaster hits a city, it's always the old people and the children who are the most vulnerable. In Israel's exile, they were the ones who suffered most. They were the ones who now were most noticeable by their absence. The Jerusalem of Zechariah's day would have been pretty much depleted in terms of children and females. In the ancient world in general, particularly in the Persian Empire, a culture built on conquest, women, children, old folks, they were all pretty much optional. What counted were those of, of the warrior class, those who could help advance the cause, carry the weight of military conquest. If there were children, they certainly weren't there playing. They had been forced into child labor. But in God's dream city, there are children playing, and there are women, and specifically, we're told, there are old women along with old men. And these elderly residents haven't just been put out to pasture. Indeed, when the ESV in our translation mentions streets here, it's actually not talking about roads or highways. Literally, the word means wide spaces. In other words, think plazas or squares large enough to accommodate large groups of people. These plazas were the, the centers of civic, civic life. And notice that the old men and the old women are sitting. Sitting in that culture meant you were in charge, functioning as one of the elders or the rulers or, or the judges. And then what are we to make of the canes? I think it's simply a reminder that the Bible never makes an idol of youth like our culture does. The Bible's not ashamed of aging. I think the cane here is emblematic of the physical limitations that come eventually to all of us. And in God's community, you carry your cane, you carry your walking stick with pride. Because in contrast, in the Persian community, they don't want people with canes. They don't need people with canes. But in God's dream city, diminished physical capacity does not equate to diminished mental capacity or mental or diminished spiritual capacity. And God's presenting all of this to us as attainable now. How? Well, I think he wants us to see that it's by committing to the ways of justice that he mentioned in, in chapter 7. Render true justice, show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. When we do these things, we start to see a present fulfillment of God's dream city. Which brings us to our final point, the beauty of Emmanuel. Look at chapter 8, 18 to 23, the end of the section. The word of the Lord of hosts came to me, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, The fast of the fourth month, and the fast of the fifth, and the fast of the seventh, and the fast of the tenth shall be to the house of Judah seasons of joy and gladness and cheerful feasts. Therefore love truth and peace. Thus says the Lord of hosts, peoples shall yet come, even the inhabitants of many cities. The inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, let us go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts. I myself am going. Many people and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, in those days, 10 men from the nations of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Jew saying, let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. Back at the beginning of chapter 7, 
we saw the visitors from Bethel come to, quote, entreat the favor of the Lord to drop one of the fast because they felt it all was just a bit too much. Well, now Zechariah nicely bookends these two chapters as he tells us of all sorts of people now from all sorts of cities and nations that are coming to entreat the favor of the Lord. It's the exact same phrase. However, their prayer is a very different sort of prayer. They're seeking the Lord to ask that he might accept them by faith. That in a ratio of 10 to 1, people from every nation and tongue will grab hold of the coattails of a Jew and say, please take us with you, for we have heard that God is with you. What's interesting here is that in Zechariah's day, God wasn't actually with his people in the way that he had been in the past. When the earlier temple had been completed, God had made his presence as clear as could be by filling the temple marvelously with his glory. But when this replacement temple was built in Zechariah's day, nothing like that happened. God did not show up to dwell in this temple. Zachariah's answer to the original question about fasting was essentially, therefore, that as long as God hasn't shown up again, and there's still this problem with your sin, it's, it's still a time for fasting. Would, in fact, be a long time that this temple absence of God would continue to be the case. A hundred years after Zechariah, the prophet Malachi declared that the Lord whom you are seeking will suddenly come to his temple. In other words, even a century later, God still hadn't shown up. But that day would come. Zechariah's contemporary Haggai had prophesied of a day when the glory of the temple would be even greater than the glory of the original temple. You say, how could that be? It was because that original temple was only ever intended to be a shadow to that which it was pointing. Because it was pointing to Jesus. The temporary was going to be replaced by the permanent. The coming of Jesus was to be the fulfillment of what Zachariah was speaking of here. The Apostle John puts it like this, John 1.14, the word became flesh, that is Jesus. The word became flesh and dwelt, literally tabernacled among us. And we have seen, what have we seen? We have seen that which hadn't come back to the temple. We have seen his glory, the glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. The nations say to the Jews, let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. And finally, with Jesus, this is true in a new and magnificent way, that God is with us. He is Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus is the beautiful Emmanuel. Zechariah says in verse 19 that while it was still then a time for fasting, the day was coming when their fast would become cheerful feasts, of joy and gladness. And that actually serves as a, as a helpful backdrop for a minute just to a discussion that Jesus has about fasting in the Gospel of Mark chapter 2. If you remember, John the Baptist's disciples come to Jesus and they say, well, how come it's we're fasting and the Pharisees are fasting? How come your disciples aren't fasting? They say, yeah, that's a good question, Jesus. How come? I mean, shouldn't you be teaching your disciples to be doing all the things religious people are supposed to do, reading their Bibles, praying, fasting? There's one thing that Jesus never appears to have taught them to do, and that's, like I was saying in the Old Testament, is to fast. 
Why not? Well, Jesus tells John's disciples why they weren't fasting, because the bridegroom's come, referring to himself. How can the guests of the bridegroom mourn and fast when the bridegroom's with them? It's not a time for fasting, it's a time for feasting. It'd be a bit like at a wedding reception and the groom holding up a piece of cake to his new wife. Well, I don't know whether he's going to smear it or not. That's not the point right now. But he's ready, they're ready to you know, celebrate their oneness by, by sharing in this piece of cake. And she says, no thanks, honey, I'm on a diet. She's not going to say that. She's going to savor it. She's going to say, forget the calories today. This is a time for rejoicing. This is for celebration. But then what about us? Is it a time for fasting or for feasting? And the answer is yes. It's both. 2 Corinthians 6, the Apostle Paul expresses well how we're in this kind of strange, ambivalent period right now. He says, we're sorrowful, but we're always rejoicing. We're sorrowful and we're moved to mourn and fast because the world still is very broken and Jesus isn't present with us in his unobscured fullness. We can't see him as the disciples could see him and as we will see him one day. But we are joyful and we have abundant reason to feast because through his spirit he has promised that he's here. He's here right now. He's here with us right now because he is Emmanuel. He's God with us now. Is it therefore time for fasting or for feasting? For us, it's both. Sergei Nakul is the pastor of Grace Reformed Church in Kiev, Ukraine. He decided to stay in the city, minister through the war. He's been posting video updates and in a recent one, he said uh, the people had been asking him, Pastor Sergei, what lessons have you been learning during these days of war? And he said, I would answer this question by one powerful and precious word, Emmanuel. God is with us. God is with me here and now. Jesus is with me. If he died for us, would he leave us right now? If he suffered for us, would he leave us in our sufferings? He said, this is so precious for me, so important, so supernaturally important for me and for millions of Christians here in Ukraine. Friends, may this be supernaturally important to us as well, that he is Emmanuel. He is God with us. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the way that your word challenges us. You do not invite us to the easy life. You have called us to feel the pain of this world, to not just wrap ourselves up in our own little worlds, but to seek to, seek to render justice, to seek to be advocates of justice for those who are in desperate need of help in so many different ways. May we take the assurance that you are with us as the strength, the ground for our action, that whatever we move into in terms of seeking to advocate for those in need, that we do not go alone, but we go with you. The one who demonstrated most clearly your passion for justice. 
Lord, we pray that we would uh, delight in all that you have in store for us in the future and that that would motivate how we live in the, in the present, that we might even see manifestations of your dream city in our midst as we live out our call to be your people. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.